When it comes to nuclear weapons, there can be a vast gulf between perception and reality. Many Americans are surprised to learn that we still possess almost 4,000 nuclear weapons in our active stockpile. Many more are completely unaware of how many times we've come right to the very edge of nuclear catastrophe and have been saved just by sheer dumb luck. But when it comes to how we plan to use these weapons, that's where the gulf between perception and reality reaches its widest point. Welcome to Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, a nonpartisan, nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., whose mission is to reduce and eventually eliminate the threats posed by weapons of mass destruction. I'm Jeff Wilson, policy analyst here at the Center and your host. If Americans think about our nuclear arsenal at all, they tend to assume that the purpose of our nuclear weapons is to deter other countries from using them against us. The idea of an actual nuclear war is pretty unthinkable, the stuff of grim Hollywood movies. Unfortunately, that's not really the case. Since the beginning of the nuclear age, there have been hundreds of serious and well-drilled plans about how we would use nuclear weapons in war, with the express purpose of actually winning that war. But therein lies the problem. When a military plan calls for the use of thousands of nuclear weapons, and assumes that your enemy will respond in kind, how do you define winning? To tell us a little bit more about how, when, and why the United States has thought about using nuclear weapons, we sat down with Dr. Fred Kaplan, author of the new book, The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. Fred Kaplan is the War Stories columnist for Slate and has a PhD in political science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He has authored six books, including The Wizards of Armageddon, the untold story of the small group of men who have devised the plans and shaped the policies on how to use the bomb, and The Insurgents, David Petraeus and the plot to change the American way of war. But today we're here to talk to him about his new book. Fred, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, sure. My pleasure. So one of the things that I like most about your new book is, is right there in the title with this focus on the idea of nuclear war and war fighting, not just the nuclear weapons themselves. I, I think that the American public sort of views these weapons, if they think about them at all, in isolation, that we have them for deterrence and that by merely possessing them, we keep other people from using them. But this isn't the whole story, and, and in fact, since the beginning of the nuclear age, there have been plans upon plans about how we would not only use them in war, but use them to win a war. What can you tell us about these incredibly detailed plans and their development over the years? Right. Uh, this is something that even a lot of scholars in the field don't, don't recognize, the extent to which war fighting has been not merely an element of the nuclear war plan, but a predominant element. Since the beginning, it's interesting, President Truman, not long after Hiroshima, you know, he was quite enthusiastic about the bomb at the beginning because he, he saw that it won the war. Shortly after, though, he had a conversation with some of his generals and David Lilienthal, who was his atomic energy commissioner, where he said, you know, this is not a military weapon. It kills women and children. It isn't like other kinds of weapons. And as a result, he put the bomb under civilian control. And for several years, you know, if, if somebody at SAC wanted to launch a, a 
weapon, then they had to go through the AEC to get the bomb. That, that changed after a while, but still, that, that illustrated the extent to which he wanted this taken out of the military's hands. The military ignored him. One thing that I discovered through research for this book is that, you know, over the years, various presidents or secretaries of defense have sent new guidance on nuclear policy down to Strategic Air Command, or as it's now called, Strategic Command. And really, through the late 80s, SAC just kind of ignored the guidance. Hmm. Uh, they, they, They got worded into the guidance phrases like, to the extent feasible or to the extent it is consistent with military objectives, you know, we will do the following things. And then they would determine, nah, it's not feasible, or nah, it's not consistent with their military objectives, and they just ignored it. So the PSYOP, the Single Integrated Operational Plan, the nuclear war plan, remained remarkably unchanged through all but the last couple of years of the Cold War. And one of the most interesting things that I think that you bring up here is that this PSYOP is often divorced from any ideas about sort of political or warfighting objectives. It just says, well, we have 1,300 weapons to use. How can we use them all? You know, we'll blow up a rail bridge, but not a road bridge. It is kind of crazy. You know, from the beginning, there has been just extraordinary overkill. It was back in 1960, when the first PSYOP was, was being created, George Kistiakowski, who was Eisenhower's science advisor, sent one of his staffers out to Omaha to, to see what was going on. And before he left, he asked the CIA, which city in the Soviet Union is most like Hiroshima in terms of industrial concentration, area, population, and so forth? That They came up with a city. And when he got there, he said, how many weapons do you have targeted against this city? And it turned out it was about four and a half megatons worth of bombs. Now, now keep in mind that, you know, Hiroshima, World War II, it was destroyed with 12 and a half kilotons versus four megatons. And this was reflected throughout. Skipping ahead to the end of this phase of the story, in the late 80s, there was a Pentagon civilian named Frank Miller, who is still very much around, who had read all the doctrinal things about limited nuclear options and stuff like that. He sat in on the briefing about the PSYOP with Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney, and he noticed that uh, in the PSYOP briefing that there was nothing said about limited options. And so he got Cheney's permission to launch a very, very deep dive into the PSYOP. He and his staff, they were the first civilians ever to dig very deeply into what weapons against what targets, and how were the calculations made to get there. And they discovered some extraordinary things. For example, and again, we're talking about 1989 to 90, that there were about 700 nuclear weapons aimed at Moscow. And there there was an air base in the Arctic Circle. It was so cold, it it wasn't even used for about two-thirds of the year, and yet 17 nuclear weapons were targeted against this base. The the anti-ballistic missile site in Moscow, which we learned after the Cold War, was completely worthless. 69 nuclear weapons were launched to get this. And, And even within target categories, for example, if a target was destroy the Soviet tank army, okay, not only did they aim weapons at the tanks, the bases where the tanks were kept, but they targeted the factory where the tanks were built, the factory where spare parts for the tanks were built. 
the factory where the metal was rolled for the tanks, the mines where, I mean, it just went on and on. Just this incredible redundancy. And the final revelation came when George H.W. Bush was negotiating a strategic arms treaty and Frank Miller went to one of his contacts in Omaha and said, listen, uh, if we lowered the number of weapons to X, would you still be able to accomplish your mission? And the guy said, no, we, we, don't, we, don't, do, we don't think in those terms. And he said, well, what I'm asking is, no, no, I understand what you're asking. We don't do that. What we do here, and this was a very senior person in what's called the Joint Strategic Target Planning Staff, which actually did the targeting of the weapons. He goes, we take the weapons we have and we allocate them to the targets that we have listed. Mm-hmm. And when... Miller took this back to Cheney and General Colin Powell, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Their jaws dropped. What it meant was that for all the previous years, nobody in the real operational chain had ever asked the question, how much is enough? I mean, forget about what, what you want to do. You need, do you want to deter a war? Do you want to win a war? Do you want to do whatever? Nobody had said, okay, to accomplish this objective, what do we need? That there was a SAC commander named General Jack Chain, who in the 80s said at a congressional hearing, I need 10,000 weapons because I have 10,000 targets. <laughs> now, people thought that either he was kidding or maybe he wasn't too smart. But in fact, that was how things really happened. I think that this brings up sort of this further central part of the book, which is that when politicians have learned of these plans, many of them from both parties have been shocked by the sort of apocalyptic scale of these planned attacks and the destruction that it and any enemy response would have wreaked. But at the same time, they've been forced to look for plans to justify the existence and huge budget of these weapons. And that's where we get some of these strategies for limited nuclear use that you talk about. To supplement, these are actually nuclear strikes to supplement conventional forces and conventional objectives. But this brings up another puzzle of nuclear strategy, and I love how you say this. How do you plan for a nuclear attack that's large enough to terrify the enemy, but small enough to be recognized unambiguously as a limited strike? So that if the enemy retaliates, he'd keep his strike limited too. This seems like a terrifying idea, that that there is some okay use of a nuclear weapon out there. Can can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, there was this one story that I was told. When when Nixon was president and Kissinger was national security advisor, at that time Iran was still run by the Shah and was viewed as an ally to the United States. and, And so... Kissinger decided, okay, Nixon and Kissinger were both interested in limited options. And and, and by the way, the limited options, they were an alternative. Let's let's step back for one second. When the PSYOP was created in 1960, the plan, the only war plan, was that if the Soviets invaded Western Europe or occupied West Berlin, something like that, and this was at a time when we had very little in the way of conventional forces in Europe. The plan was to unleash our entire nuclear arsenal at every target in the Soviet Union, the satellite nations of Europe, and China, even if China was not directly involved in the war. And it was estimated that this would kill about 285 million people. So in that context, the search for limited nuclear options 
especially if you believed as a premise that A, there might be a war with the Soviet Union, and B, it would go nuclear at some point, then the search for options looks like a not unreasonable endeavor. Now, so in, in, in around 1970, Kissinger is looking at various war plans, and he asks the chiefs, the joint chiefs, okay, come up with for me with a limited nuclear plan for staving off a Soviet invasion of Iran. So they come back, and they've got a target. They've got a plan to use 200 nuclear weapons. <laughs> and Kissinger explodes. He goes, this is a, this is a limited plan? Are you kidding me? 200 nuclear weapons? Go, you know, go back to the drawing board. And they come back with another plan. There, there were two roads, tank-usable roads, going from southern USSR into Iran. And this new plan exploded a nuclear weapon on one of the roads, and then two atomic demolition mines, which we still had back then, on the other road. And Kissinger explodes again, and he says, the president... The United States uses nuclear weapons in anger for the first time since World War II, and you've got him using two weapons? Are you crazy? He'll look like a Brezhnev will think that he's a chicken. So that was it. Like, how much is too much and how much is not enough? But this dates back to an even more basic dilemma, and it was articulated first by President Kennedy shortly after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Kennedy is talking about the following year's defense budget with McNamara and General Maxwell Taylor, his chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he says, you know, I, I don't know why we're buying so many nuclear weapons. I mean, it seems to me that, that 40 missiles getting through to 40 Soviet cities, that would be enough to deter them. I mean, when the Russians had 24 missiles in Cuba, that would have been enough to deter me from doing a lot of things. But then later in the conversation, he says, you know, I guess if deterrence fails, I, I, I guess I would want to go after their missiles, not their cities. And yeah, that, that might... That'll take more, because he was also talking about missiles they had in Europe, Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. I guess that would take more than 40 missiles. So therein he kind of uh, laid out the basic dilemma of nuclear strategy. On the one hand, if all you want to do is deter, it doesn't take much. This is why third world countries, some of them get a hold of a dozen or so nuclear weapons. It has an effect. On the other hand, if deterrence fails... And who knows the many ways in which that could happen. You don't want to just blow everybody to smithereens, especially if they have weapons as well, and they could blow you to smithereens. You want to try to bring this thing under control, keep the damage limited, as they say. And so you go up with other plans. But then when you do that, you have to kind of convince yourself as well as the enemy. You have to have plans to do this. You have to have certain weapons to do this. You have to have command and control that allows you to do this. And what has happened over the decades is that the concept of nuclear deterrence, because it has to be credible. One could say, if the idea is Soviets invade Western Europe, we blow them up with nuclear weapons, but then they blow us up with nuclear weapons. That's not a credible threat, because we're committing suicide. So the idea is that over the decades, the concepts of nuclear deterrence, credible deterrence, and nuclear war fighting converged. They became the same thing.
So I think that's really interesting, and especially because supposedly war games in the Reagan era that showed this idea, which I think you're getting at here, of escalation. Well, if the Soviets invade and we use 20 nuclear weapons, that forces them to use 20 weapons, and then it, it gets out of control from there. Supposedly led to Reagan to famously say, a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought, right? And I think that if any lesson can be drawn from the Cold War it's possibly that more weapons do not make us more safe, right? At, at one point, we had over 30,000 weapons, and the fear of war was constant. So, but recently, I think that we've started to see this shift back towards some of this old thinking that you describe in the book. Just a couple examples here. For instance, President Trump supposedly asked on the campaign trail, well, if we have these weapons, why can't we use them? Or earlier this month, earlier in February, we learned that a new tactical nuclear warhead, the W-76-2, was deployed on American submarines. And now the White House has submitted this new defense budget to Congress that would increase nuclear weapons and related programs spending by something like $75 billion. How worried should we be about this sort of behavior? Do, do you think that we are actually starting to head back down the wrong direction here again? Well, first of all, you, you refer to the W-76 as a tactical nuclear weapon. I don't think it is that. You know, I've gotten different answers from different people on this. I've asked them, what is the plan? What, what targets are you going to hit with the W-76? I mean, the scenario, as you know, is there's a war in Europe somehow. The Russians launch a low-yield nuclear weapon against NATO forces to kind of make us back down, as they say, escalate to de-escalate. So we need to have a low-yield nuclear weapon as well, so that uh, the Russians know that if they did that, we could respond in kind. Well... I mean, the whole concept is a little screwy because, I mean, we already have a lot of low-yield nuclear weapons on bombers. Right. And then people will say, oh, yeah, but bombers can be shot down. Well, not all of them are going to be shot down. Maybe a few of them will. And if you're talking about deterrence, they don't all have to get through. So, but I've asked people, well, where are these things going to be aimed at? Are they going to be aimed inside Russia? In which case, that would be quite an escalation. And nobody's given me, I've, some of the advocates say, oh, yeah, no, we, we want to escalate it. We want to aim it into Russia. Others say, oh, no, it would be in the theater. And, you know, it's curious. There, there was a war game that I found out about late in the Obama administration. The National Security Council played out this threat. They did a little simulation. And the deputies committee of the NSC played out this threat. And there were a couple of people within the deputies committee who said, you know, Maybe we shouldn't fire back with nuclear weapons. If you imagine if Russia was the first country to use nuclear weapons, imagine the, the horrible politics this puts them in. We could, we could rally the world against them, whereas if we use them ourselves, then we join the club. And besides, they asked the military people, where are you going to aim this? Nobody could come up with a good answer. How is this actually going to end or win the war? And so the deputies committee actually concluded that the best response would be to continue the conventional war, which, which under this assumption, we were winning. It went to the principals committees, the actual cabinet secretaries, and they derided this whole option, saying that they, they couldn't come up with an answer either on where these weapons would be used, how they would be used, what result, what would happen in step three or four. But they said, we have to use nuclear weapons in response to a nuclear strike. Otherwise, our credibility is completely shot. 
But it seems to me that where we are now, we're back in a situation where any talk of nuclear weapons is really Baroque. I mean, in, in these earlier surrender or suicide options, as they were called, the, the idea is we, we, wouldn't have, we didn't have any conventional defense. Mm-hmm. Nukes were all we had. That's no longer true. Second, yeah, as you say, we're, we're about to free ourselves from the last nuclear arms control treaty. And, and while arms control treaties have had their up and down side, a lot of times in the, in the ratification process, they've been used as, as bargaining chips by the opponents of the treaty to get a lot of nuclear weapons that they might otherwise not have got. Like, okay, we'll ratify the treaty, but you've got to give us the MX missile or something right. like that. But without any restraints whatsoever... This could balloon very easily. I mean, take, for example, the INF Treaty, which Trump abrogated last year. The Russians had been cheating on it a little bit. But so then what do we do when we we abrogate it? We instantly test a missile of the range that had been barred by this treaty. And I asked some people in the Pentagon who would know, I say, well, what's the strategic rationale for having this missile? Because why do we need a medium-range missile? And they said, well, haven't really thought about that much. Uh, yes, yet. We haven't yet talked to allies about where we would base such a thing, because, you know, the allies in Europe want no part of this anymore. In, in terms of Asia, I mean, I guess we could put them on Guam, but if you want a medium-range missile, it, the treaty only outlaws land base. You can put medium-range missiles on submarines or ships. Right. So we, we don't have a basing plan. We haven't talked with allies. We don't know what these are going to be used for. But because we can do this, we are doing it. Right. And this official who told me this, he, he wasn't saying it as a critique of the decision. He was saying it in a very matter-of-fact way. So if, if everything is lifted from the treaties and we can do whatever we want, then we will. Another thing about New START in particular was that there were very stringent inspection procedures for verification. Those would be gone. And therefore, the, the worst-case analyst, you know, like, see that warehouse, there might be a missile in there. See this construction project, they might be planning to put missiles in there. The, the, the kind of thing, the worst case intelligence planning, which, you know, it's a series of arms control treaties has cut off, will once again be allowed to run at full force ahead. It's very dangerous. It's very dangerous indeed. And, and so I just want to drill down on this one part just a little bit more here. What you're saying sort of strikes me as we're spending all this money. I think Congress got itself this deal for ratifying New START. We would also commit to re-modernizing the nuclear weapons program. Now, people have said that that's going to be something like almost $2 trillion with inflation over the next 30 years. And now we're looking at new new weapons here in this Trump budget. And if I realize that some of these terms don't work anymore. You know, if they're not tactical, they are less than deterrent weapons, right? They are things like the submarine-launched cruise missile or INF range missiles, is this starting to happen without a strategy again? Absolutely. It's happening without a strategy. But let's go back a little bit to this Obama trade-off for New START. And the letter, if you look at the letter, which I quote in, the, in my book, he talked about, in exchange for a ratification, first, he agreed to spend a lot more on the, the nuclear weapons complex. But second, he also agreed to recommend to modernize or replace all three legs of the triad. Now, modernize could be new software for the launch control center. It's not necessarily buying a whole bunch of new missiles. The Republicans took that as a commitment to replace 
everything, new ICBM, new SLBM, new cruise missiles, new bombers, new everything, and put this $1.3 trillion price tag on it, which he took as a real betrayal of, of his intentions. And now, now they're doing something very clever. When Trump came into office, and you remember Jim Mattis, who was Secretary of Defense, he had been a four-star Marine general. Marines mm-hmm. have never had nuclear weapons in any number. He had given testimony to the Hill in 2015 saying we might want to look at just abolishing the land-based ICBMs. Right. Okay, well, defense people and the Republicans started referring to this $1.3 trillion plan as the Obama program of record, which it wasn't. But by calling it the Obama program of record, it made it very difficult for anybody in the Trump administration to argue in favor of coming in with fewer weapons or a smaller budget than Obama had agreed to. So that kind of sealed the deal. Right. And now, you know, having pushed that discussion down the road into this new administration, now we're looking at a new warhead, right? The W-93. Now we're looking at a bunch of new weapon systems that may or may not have ever been intended under that original plan even, right? It wasn't even, it wasn't part of the, nobody had heard of this at the beginning. This was an invention. But, you know, the other thing is, and, and I write about this in the book, too, and I don't think it's been covered anyplace else. Under Obama, there was a, a review of the PSYOP that was every bit as extensive as what Frank Miller had done during the Bush 1 administration. And they came up with, you know, it was a big thing. It was in the NSC. The commander of STRATCOM would come every couple of weeks for months, and they went over every single target and should this remain a target, and do we really need to aim two warheads? Is one warhead enough? And, and so forth. Very, very detailed. And they came up with the conclusion that, and, and the STRATCOM commander agreed, that for, just for security purposes, we could reduce the number of weapons by an additional one-third, even beyond what was in New START. And, and even then, one of the participants told me, even by reducing it by one-third, the rubble would bounce twice instead of three times. But the Joint Chiefs said, we will endorse this idea only if the Russians also reduce their forces further by one-third. Now, you know, under classic deterrence strategy, right, you say, I'm just going to determine how many I need for the aims that I want to accomplish, and it doesn't matter what the other side does. But by this time, the Russians had, you know, annexed Crimea and uh, invaded eastern Ukraine, and this just wasn't going to happen. And Obama, he had very lofty ideals, but he was very pragmatic and even centrist in, in pursuing these ideals. He also was against the idea of unilateral reductions. Mm. He thought for domestic politics, you had to sell a lot of things to get that approved. And in international politics, if you have negotiations going on, by unilaterally reducing, you are giving away a lot of your bargaining leverage. So that's what happened there. Even by the admission of the Joint Chiefs and the STRATCOM commander at the time, we have at least one-third more nuclear weapons than we need, even under quite conservative definitions of what we need means. Mm. So having just conducted this epic survey of U.S. nuclear plans and leaders and how they've shaped and related to those plans, 
What do you think are the most necessary changes that should be made to U.S. nuclear doctrine to sort of stop the very serious problems that we've had with it? And, and what needs to happen for those changes to be made, do you think? Well, you know, one thing that Obama stated as a goal to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in national security policy. But he didn't do as much as he wanted to for a variety of reasons to get there. I think at some point it's time that we do that again. We make it very clear that these things are not for first use. We open ourselves to unilateral reductions that could be made without delivering the wrong message. I think we, we give another serious look at getting rid of land-based ICBMs. I mean, those are at once the most potent and the most vulnerable of these weapons. And therefore, if there is some situation which creates preemptive temptations, let's say, those are going to be the target. And so one thing you might want to do is, in a jujitsu kind of move, is get rid of the target. Mm. And then there are lots of things to do with other countries. I mean, unfortunately, at this moment, the state of politics, international, the kind of anarchic state of international politics and the tensions the, between the United States and Russia and between the United States and China, the United States and Pakistan. Some of these tensions are quite... Uh, there's good reasons at this moment to have tensions for, from our side with, with Russia. I mean, you know, Russia has been doing some very aggressive things against us. But before we can get there, I think we have to come down off that road. The thing about arms control, uh, through the 60s and 70s and 80s, arms control didn't do a whole lot, but it was kind of a way for the leaders of the U.S. and the Soviet Union to get together in a diplomatic forum and talk about arms control because they were really unable to talk about anything else. And some things were, were accomplished. And not only that, but, you know, you sit in a room over the years and years, a certain trust is developed. So I think that's one way to do this, is to reopen all nuclear arms control negotiations, recognize that it might not even have that much tangible effect, but it's good to get it back on the curve. You know, renewing New START, which expires in February 2021, this can be done by the stroke of a pen. And, and then you, 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 you keep the negotiations going, even if they don't go anywhere. I think keeping these forums going, again, we're, we're getting to the point where these are among the few things that can still be talked about on, on a level involving experts to be removed from politics. You know, there, there are much greater tensions between the U.S. and Russia back during the Cold War than there are now, and yet we still were able to accomplish quite a bit. And I think looking again at, at arms control as a way to, to help reduce tensions and to have a forum for doing something really serious at a time when, when tensions are reduced even further. So one of the things that you said is that there's room for the United States to make unilateral cuts to options. We have some legacy yeah. programs like the ICBM that are just large targets, right? Are you concerned with our procurement process going forward? Are there other things that we can do to sort of slow or halt this new arms race that people are saying that we're in? Do you agree with that? Well, you know, one thing that I find kind of staggering is, okay, we now have defense budgets above $700 billion for the last few years, and nobody's even looking at this. I mean, nobody is even analyzing it. Do we really need a dozen F-35 stealth aircraft? And it turns out that it's not that stealthy, and the damn machine gun on the thing doesn't even hit its targets. I mean, there used to be this kind of green eyeshade analysis of the defense budget. Nobody's doing it, and nobody's analyzing 
the nuclear weapons either. There's this view that, oh, well, if we, if we question this, we'll be seen as soft on defense. There used to be, in Congress especially, and in the Office of Management and Budget and in the Office of Secretary of Defense, kind of a more hard-nosed analytical framework. And, and that has vanished completely. And I, I think that's something we're worth restoring. There, there are dangers in the world. There are threats in the world. But, but why we need to spend more money on the military, even adjusted for inflation than we were spending at the height of the Cold War, right. is on the face of it kind of insane. So final question here for you, Fred. What are the biggest thoughts or realizations that you want people to take away from your new book? What, what was the most surprising thing that you learned while researching? And, and what is it that you really want readers to take home with them? I think I tell you that the big thing, the main point that presidents, as opposed to military people, when, when they really get into this, and often it's for the first time, they realize that this is insane and they have to get out of it if they get into a crisis. And that's one of the reasons why we haven't had a war. But not every president or Russian leader or whatever is going to be as shrewd as the ones we've had. So what happens when you have this infrastructure, which has been chugging along all these years? You know, there was about 30 years when nobody you know, in the real world thought, much less worried much about nuclear weapons. But this machinery kept chugging along. They kept putting out war plans and building weapons and so forth. What happens when that machinery keeps chugging along and we have a president who isn't so shrewd and we have a bit of bad luck instead of good luck mm. and then a moment of high tension and somebody comes along with a nice briefing which suggests that we can get away with using these things in a victorious way? Then what happens? That's something that really due to strictly good fortune we haven't seen, but it's not an impossible prospect. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a product of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. It is produced by Rowan Humphreys. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at nukes underscore of underscore hazard and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash armscontrolcenter. You can also follow Dr. Fred Kaplan on Twitter at F.M. Kaplan, and purchase his latest book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Thanks again for tuning in, and see you next time.